Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. She could just stay put in New York City rather than, say, relocating to Cleveland. That a single woman like her might meet an Ivy League corporate executive or a trust fund educated entrepreneur or a Wall Street millionaire. Or perhaps, she said, maybe she would befriend a well-to-do business person who would offer her a fancy, high-paying job, and she would class jump. Now, when many of us hear this story, when many of you hear this story, I know how you feel because it's the same way I felt. You're tempted to respond with disdain or judgment for such naked ambitions, but to borrow from one of the great philosophers of the late 20th century, Krusty the Clown, She's just saying the quiet part out loud. Because truth be told, a desire for status is one of the most human attributes there is. It is universal. When writer William Storr conducted a sweeping study of the mechanics of human societies across space and time, he concluded that status appeared to be the fundamental human desire. Humans survive by finding acceptance within supportive communities. We don't just want to belong, we need to belong. But whenever a community forms, its members naturally arrange themselves into a kind of hierarchy. And because these hierarchies themselves are invisible, we don't know precisely where other players sit in relation to us, but we can sense it. We can observe the symbols that we've attached to particular values. A word affixed on a watch face, a logo sewn on a handbag, a school's name printed on a diploma, the zip code on a mailing address, the job title on a LinkedIn profile, a blue check mark on a social media account. From a very early age, we learn to discern where we sit in these various pecking orders, the pecking orders of whatever ecosystems we find ourselves in. As Loretta Brunig, an expert in human emotion, has observed, most people see the world through a lens they built in high school. 
That's the time in our lives when social standing and popularity first begin to consume our lives. From that point on, our brains begin to rewire themselves. We begin to take note of social interactions and body language, eye contact patterns, and facial markers of submission or dominance. Then our brain begins to, to guide our decision-making, to raise our standing by forming advantageous relationships, flattering status brokers, impressing gatekeepers, and we often do these things in imperceptibly subtle ways. Life is a game, Store writes, a status game. There's no way to understand the human world without first understanding this. Everyone alive is playing a game whose hidden rules are built into us and that silently direct our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions. The game is inside of us. The game is us. We can't help but play it. Your ambitions and desires and striving may take a different shape than my friends did. You may not be consciously aware of them, and if you are, you probably don't have the gall to say the quiet thing out loud. But in some way, in your own way, you two are playing a status game, and you keep playing it because the higher you rise, the more the system affords you benefits. Going all the way back to the Stone Age, Higher status has always meant greater influence, access to a wider choice of mates, more security and resources for ourselves and our children. Status causes people to defer to us, to offer us respect or admiration or praise, allowing us to influence them in some way. It is better at the top of the ladder. We know this deep down in our bones which is why status drives so many of the decisions we make, the habits we create. Status influences the way you talk, how you dress, how you show up in the workplace, how you express yourself on the internet. Now, I realize this is Denver, and many of you are perhaps one of those crunchy granola types. <laughs> you prefer Patagonia puffers to luxury handbags, but that does not make you exempt the status game can be played in so many ways. There are political games and corporate games and fashion games and legal games and social media games and race games and gender games and, of course, sports games. We're all fish, and this is our water. One of the problems with status games is how risky they are. Studies show that people who feel deprived of status or perceive themselves of being of low standing experience higher rates of anger, physical illness, anxiety, depression, even a higher risk of suicide. Our thirst for status and our fear of losing it actually denies us the possibility of reliable happiness. It can make us petty and hateful and aggressive and grandiose and racist and even delusional. But perhaps the worst part of status games is that they're unwinnable. There are no fixed rules. There's no definitive endpoint. The goal, which is just more status, is based on external markers of success and validation that are ever-changing and completely subjective. The moment you climb a rung, there's another one calling your name. 
The status game is driven by comparison and competition. The only way to establish a sense of superiority is to evaluate where you are in the system and then outperform others to advance yourself. In the Christian tradition, we've often talked about our desire for status in terms of pride. And the British writer C.S. Lewis described the mechanics of pride this way. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're only proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others because if everybody else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Status games are self-perpetuating. They are never-ending because there will always be someone wealthier than you or smarter than you or more accomplished or more influential. The goalposts are ever and always moving down the field, and so here we are stuck in hell, you and me. Stuck in a world that values accomplishments and accolades in a society arranged into countless invisible hierarchies on a common quest, you and me, to climb higher and higher, spending our limited years on planet Earth pursuing more for the sake of more, more recognition, more approval, more titles, more wealth, more likes, more social influence, more external validation. So judge my friend from New York if you want to, but the truth is, you and I aren't so different from her after all, because we are all in our own unique ways being held hostage by status, chained to a never-ending treadmill that is draining us to the point of exhaustion, miserable, dissatisfied, disillusioned, disappointed, plagued by feelings of insecurity and worthlessness and never-enoughness because we are all trapped playing a game from which there is no possibility of escape. Or is there? Today's gospel story actually has a little something to say about this. In the lead-up to Matthew's 18th chapter, Jesus and his disciples have taken their traveling gospel roadshow all over the countryside, and it has been quite a spectacle. At each stop, Jesus has healed the sick and fed the hungry, taught the curious, touched the open-hearted, and usually stirred up a little controversy before they moved on to the next town. But now their caravan has turned toward Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And on this leg of the journey, Jesus has decided it's time to break some difficult news. Their road show, he said, has been a blast. But like all good things, it's coming to its end. Twice, Jesus tells them that he will suffer and die when they arrive in Jerusalem, which is undeniably sad because Jesus is their friend and they do not want him to leave. But it also means that there's about to be a bit of a leadership vacuum in their clan. As veterans of the status game, the disciples want to figure out their position in the pecking order and to know who will be in charge after Jesus is gone. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they asked. It's such an embarrassing question, you almost wonder why Matthew bothered to write it down. But theologian Mary Hinkle Shore says the disciples sort of look like bickering siblings. She says they're graduate students comparing GRE scores. 
There are ministers discussing how many attend worship in their church each week. There anyone who's ever written a memo containing the words measurable outcomes. At first glance, the disciples seem pretty petty, but there's more going on here. You see, both Roman culture and Mediterranean Judaism were particularly status conscious. In fact, Jewish society in the first century had divided itself up into distinct classes and groups. There was an elite class at the top that included the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just beneath the elite class was an educated class that included groups like the Essenes, the Herodians, the priests, and the Levites who oversaw the temple. Below, below these two classes was everybody else, all the ordinary Jewish peasants and all manner of despised people, slaves and prostitutes and pariahs such as tax collectors, people believed to be demon-possessed. They all existed on the bottom rungs. Like us, the disciples have lived their entire lives in a class-aware culture where people are playing status games. And like us, they're not fully aware of or conscious of it. Status is just part of the software that society has installed on their hard drives without ever asking permission. And so they assumed, the disciples, quite naturally, that the new world that they are creating with Jesus is at least somewhat similar to the only world they've ever known. In Luke's version of this encounter, Jesus responds by saying, In this world, the kings and great men lord their power over the people, but among you, it will be different. The world that you have known your whole life and the world that Jesus is building in our midst are not the same. This much is clear. But how are they different? Well, rather than tell them, the disciple decides to show them. Now, if you've been following Jesus' teaching through this gospel or his gospel, you'll know that Jesus was a wonderful teacher who used a range of pedagogical tools to hammer lessons into his hard-headed disciple skulls. And this time, the teacher settles on an object lesson using a visual aid. Then he called a little child over to sit among the disciples. Now, that may not seem too shocking to us because we live in 21st century Western culture. Most of us hold children in high regard. I think my nephew and nieces are great. And if you have kids of your own, you probably say that despite their faults and their flaws, of which there are many, they're pretty great too. But in first century Palestine, children had no acquired status. They had no inalienable, inalienable rights. Children were not well considered by most people because most people didn't consider children at all. And since the infant mortality rate was as high as 50%, which meant that every other child died, parents had, were often slower to form a deep parental attachment with little children. In ancient Palestine, children were frequently seen as half-human until they reached adulthood. Girls often suffered more than boys. Ancient records talk of newborn females being thrown away, left to starve or be eaten by predators or sold for prostitution at an early age to save poor families the cost of raising an expensive daughter. 
Dig deeper into this text, peel back the layers, and you'll find that even the language used here underscores the ridiculousness of Jesus' example. In Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, the nouns for child are neither masculine nor feminine. They're neuter, right? So the child in this story is not a he or a she. It's an it. This child is a nobody, a nothing. And Jesus places this nameless nobody in the center of his disciples and says, this is the face of greatness. You can only imagine what the disciples were thinking at this point. The death march to Jerusalem has finally driven their rabbi to the brink of insanity. He's lost it. I mean, we all know what the word great means. It's a pretty common word with a simple definition. And this stationless, moneyless, fameless, powerless, reputationless, statusless it does not fit the definition. Oh, but Jesus is not bound by our culturally conditioned concepts and constricting dictionary definitions. And what's more, Jesus is not even bound by the conclusions that we've drawn from the folklore of our own faith. You see, the concept of status had not only been encoded into the disciples' brains and bodies, it had been written into their sacred scriptures. Judaism was filled with the tales of heroines and heroes passed down from generation to generation as models of what greatness really looked like. Joseph and Deborah and Moses and David and Esther. These are kings and queens and judges and prophets and priests and generals. In so many ways, the heroes of the Jewish faith were people of status. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, the disciples knew about the heroes of old. They had lists of them. Along with faith and hope, military courage and success tended to loom large among their qualities, and Jesus tosses all of that out the window and instead calls a little child shy, vulnerable, unsure of herself, but trusting with clear eyes, ready to listen, to be loved and to love, to learn and to grow. You know, you don't have to follow Jesus long before you notice he has a penchant for breaking down the boxes that we've built and the ones that we've inherited. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is inviting them to let go of their dictionary definitions, to reconsider the conclusions that they've drawn from their sacred scriptures, to challenge the assumptions they've inherited from the architects of society, to break the habits of the earthly kingdom. Jesus is stirring within them, and I would say within us, a sacred imagination for a new way of living. He's asking them and he's asking us to start seeing the world through the other end of the telescope. To consider that the inner workings, the orientations of the kingdom of God are fundamentally different than the kingdom of earth. And with this little it standing in their midst, the disciples are at a loss for words. Because the request that Jesus is making of them 
and of us is no small thing. I assure you, Jesus says, if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you definitely will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, at first, Jesus' words here can sound quite ominous, even threatening. And for those of us who are like me, who grew up in rigid, fundamentalist traditions, it might even feel like Jesus is actually threatening you. We may be tempted to read the kingdom of heaven as simply heaven. And we think that Jesus might be threatening to exclude us from the felicity of the afterlife if we don't change our ways and obey his request. Matthew uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven and the other gospels use the phrase the kingdom of God to refer not to a geographical location but to a spiritual reality. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a reality of a world where God's values and God's vision are centered, where humanity's ego-driven constructions have faded away. As Christian mystic Cynthia Bourgeau says, the kingdom of heaven is really a metaphor for a state of consciousness. The kingdom of heaven is not a place you go to, but a place you come from. The kingdom of heaven is a whole new way of looking at the world. It's a transformed awareness that literally turns the world into a different place. The hallmark of this awareness is that it sees no separation. No separation between God and humans, Emmanuel, God with us, and no separation between humans and other humans, all of us divine image bearers. And so that's why Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's accessible to you in this moment, the kingdom, not just after you die. You just have to awaken to it. Awaken to the kingdom and watch the world transform. You see, Jesus isn't making a threat. Jesus is just telling us a God-honest truth. You will never find the peace that transcends understanding if you remained obsessed with your place in humanity's pecking order. It won't happen. You'll never find the path to almighty love if you're working overtime as a professional ladder climber. You'll never experience the joy of God's full embrace if you are consumed with comparing and competing and striving and performing and winning. That's just the truth. All the great spiritual traditions have actually come to this wisdom in their own way. If you were a Buddhist this morning, you'd know the story of Siddhartha, who came to be known as the Buddha. Legend has it that he was a prince striving to be a king. And then he walked out of his kingdom one day and he saw an old man and a sick man and a rotting corpse. And he knew what Solomon said, vanity. It's all vanity. And so he left it all. 
Leaving his kingdom behind, he meditated, legend has it, for seven days, and at the end he came to a single conclusion. All suffering is striving. He knew, I think, what Jesus knew, although Jesus has his own answer to the same problem. Those who humble themselves and become like this little it will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, the first time I encountered Jesus' words here, I assumed that what Jesus was calling for was a kind of divine reversal whereby we keep playing the game, but we just invert the rules. But I've come to realize in recent years that that way of seeing what Jesus is saying doesn't resolve the problem, it just remixes the problem. See, the most common status game is what Store calls a success game, where status is awarded through achievement, but there are also what Store calls virtue games, in which status is awarded to the most moral or good person. Status games are played by sports teams and corporations, but you will find virtue games being played in royal institutions and, wait for it, religious communities. In the latter, in virtue games, Storr says the goal is to achieve spiritual superiority. Virtue games are harder to spot unless you know what you're looking for. People who play virtue games may be less likely to brag about their wealth or their famous friends, but they're always telling stories about how they're becoming more generous and more caring and more compassionate and more Christ-like. They post photos of their Bibles open next to their coffee cups at sunrise, and they post edited videos of people they've been serving in their local community service project, hashtag servant's heart. Is this what Jesus means when he asks us to humble ourselves? Is he asking us to keep striving and performing, but only point ourselves in the opposite direction? Christian writer Richard Foster once said that humility is one of those virtues that is never gained by seeking it, because the more we pursue it, the more distant it becomes. Pursuit of humility is only pride by a different name. So Jesus is asking us here not to just to give up self-aggrandizement, but also self-deprecation, and instead embrace self-forgetfulness. How do we live this out? To humble ourselves like a little child. This nameless nobody in their midst isn't frantically playing a downwardly mobile game, rushing to get to a lower rung as fast as it can. The child's not playing the game at all. There are so many casualties of growing up. Curiosity diminishes. Joy is overshadowed by seriousness. Wonder at the world is sidelined. We stop staring awestruck at the clouds and dumbstruck at the ordinary miracles. And Jesus is telling us there's a paradox to the Christian life that humans mature into adulthood, but Christians mature into childlikeness. We physically mature into adulthood and we spiritually mature into childlikeness. And now the twist. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And he's telling us this, that the child in this object lesson is just a stand-in for the teacher himself. 
Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann said, Jesus broke with all the models of humanity that are visible in our own time and place, the rat race of productivity, the fear of survival, the frenzy of accumulation, and the deathly sense of self-sufficiently. A child is totally dependent on their parent for whatever they have. They can only exist as they are, and so they live their lives with utter childlikeness, which is to say they live into the wonder and awe and tenderness and joy and curiosity and dependence, and they just keep doing this until the adult world teaches them about domination and superiority and manipulation and competitiveness and self-aggrandizement. So what would it look like for you? begin to awaken to the kingdom of heaven inside of you? What would it look like for you to begin to turn around, to turn your back to the status game that you've been playing for far too long? Right before the pandemic, I experienced something of a breakdown. I had been working myself to the bone for years to become a successful columnist and an author and a commentator and a speaker. I had been striving for status, clawing my way up the ladder. My star had risen, but it had come at an incredible price. And I was crumbling under the pressure to perform. Finally, when I couldn't take it anymore, I decided to go to a retreat, retreat center I had heard about in Tennessee that specializes in healing trauma and teaching people to live more centered lives. Upon arrival, the people in our cohort were asked to turn in all of our electronic devices. We were to told that during our time there, we were not permitted to discuss what we did for work. We could not share our last names. We only had to interact with with each other on the basis of our own humanity, and in a blink, the ground on which we all stood was leveled out. We couldn't compare job titles or social media influence. Other markers of status became impossible to discern or faded into the background. And you know what happened? Bonds were made and friendships were formed without pretense. When the week ended and the rules lifted, the truth about our lives were revealed. We found out that a young queer kid who worked as a pharmacy tech in Miami had bonded with a billionaire Republican donor from the Midwest. We found out that a famous Hollywood producer had formed an abiding relationship with an unemployed single mother-to-be from nowhere, Indiana. Cut off from the world and our constructed identities, we bonded across status and classes, forging relationships based on the deeper things of life. If the kingdom of heaven is a whole new way of looking at the world, a transformed awareness that turns the world into a place where there are no differences between you and me, no matter who you and me may be, well, I guess you could say I, for a moment, glimpsed the kingdom of heaven in that place and among those people. And I can't help but believe that Matthew has come to us with this story on this day to give us an invitation to do the same, to turn our lives around and reposture ourselves in a new direction. And so I ask you, are you tired? of hustling and busyness and suspicions and striving and comparing and competing 
and jealousy and judgmentalism, then receive the good news. You don't have to be a slave to status. You can quit playing this game. You can turn your life around right now. So the next time that you see a blissfully unpretentious little child, remind yourself, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is what wisdom looks like. This is what freedom looks like. This is what abundant life looks like. Look that child in the eyes and then go away and learn about that. And then go live that. Amen. Amen.